Escaped sapiens. How is the balance of global power shifting with the development of science and technology? In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Professor Oliver Boyd Barrett from Bowling Green State University. Oliver is an expert in international communications, the media, news, war, and terrorism. In this two-part episode, we discuss the shifting science of propaganda. How does social media enable distraction and polarization? How does misinformation spread? Do bot farms and troll armies democratize propaganda? Do cyber warfare level the balance of global power? Or do the same old forces continue to hold sway? This one's pretty intense. I hope you enjoy. Oliver Boyd Barrett, welcome on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, you know, media propaganda is an enormous topic, and really there are almost infinite entry points into the discussion. But since you've had uh, a recent focus in uh, Russia and so Russia Gate and the Ukraine crisis, I thought it might be a good idea to start there with some questions, and then we can branch out more generally uh, into the further discussion. Absolutely. So, you know, in the West, Russia and Putin are sort of seen often spoken about in, in some senses, boogeymen. And during the Trump presidency, essentially the whole way through, there was discussion of interference in the election, the 2016 election. And whether or not there was uh, any, any sort of uh, fiddling or meddling from the Russian side, I want to get uh, some senses towards the motivations. So what, what are the reasons that Russia may have wanted uh, Trump to win the presidency as opposed to Hillary? Yes, there were some reasons why uh, Russia would have wanted uh, Trump uh, over, over Hillary Clinton. Uh, the main reason being that Trump uh, in his campaign, but before his campaign, uh, had indicated uh, his interest, his, his very, there are not many things that I can say about Trump uh, that, are, that are positive. Uh, but one of the things that I can say about him is that uh, in the period leading up to the 2016 election, he did sound uh, remarkably uh, sensible mm -hmm. and balanced uh, in his view uh, of Russia. Uh, like any good businessman, I suppose, uh, he had the idea that it's actually quite a good idea to keep relations open with as many people as possible, because then uh, you can do business and there's more uh, opportunity for uh, earning profit, uh, maybe to uh, the mutual advantage of, of, of the different parties. Th this seemed to me to be eminently uh, sensible. And uh, furthermore, it had a very significant political implication that would have in my view, uh, would have suited American foreign policy interests. Namely, it would have uh, likely ensured that there would remain a barrier, a gap between uh, Russia and China. Uh, so long as the uh, uh, Euro-Asian continent is divided between uh two competitive powers, namely Russia and uh, China, so much the better for the United States, because then the United States is in a stronger position uh, to, to pick and choose or to decide, well, we will ally with Russia, and in that way, uh, we will contain China. Because Russia is a far smaller economy, it's a, it's a big country geographically, mm -hmm. Uh, it has that going for it. Um, but its population is um, very, very modest, 150 uh, million. Uh, its GDP is extremely modest. Its defense expenditure is actually very modest. 
um, all of these things would have actually made Russia quite a good ally uh, for the United States, not to mention the fact that uh, Trump uh, and many of his colleagues had a surprisingly strong network of affiliations and contacts with uh, Russian with Russian speakers. Uh, now, I'm not saying that all of those um, were particularly desirable, but it did indicate that they had a very strong platform from which they could begin to build uh, an interesting relationship uh, with Russia that would have broken the mold that has been set over the last decade or so uh, between um, between the United States and Russia. So all of this, uh, I felt, uh, was a positive. It's about the only th positive thing I have to say uh, about Donald Trump. But it's, 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 it's kind of an important um, positive because it removes some of the threat um, of nuclear war. Mm -hmm. uh, if Russia and the United States are actually talking to one another, uh, having business dealings with uh, one another, actually care positively about one another, the, ch the chances of a, a, of a nuclear war, whether by accident or by design, uh, are immensely less. And that, to my mind, is a really, really good thing. So, so in, yes. in your view, was this a wasted opportunity then uh, to focus on this particular influence on, on the elections? Uh, what was a wasted uh, opportunity was the Democratic Party decision uh, to uh, to uh, to critique uh, Trump uh, for his supposed um, f uh, uh, friendly inclinations uh, towards towards Russia. Uh, why? How, how, what set them on that path? Well, to my mind, there's there's uh, very little doubt any longer, uh, not only as a result of my work, but as a result of the work that I have seen um, that I hope will very soon be published by a Russia expert in uh, the United Kingdom, Professor uh, Sakwa at the University of Canterbury. Uh, he is uh, about to produce, I very much hope, because uh, a quick aside, the publishing industry now the academic publishing industry is itself, I think, I think, I don't have any direct evidence for this, so, but, but I have to speculate, and I, I do speculate that the, the publishing industry, particularly in Great Britain, but possibly here in the United States, is ever more um, sensitive to and compliant with the wishes of the deep state. And uh, mm -hmm. so whether we're going to see this stunningly impactful work from Richard Sakwa. I don't know. I very, very much hope so. But I think he's more or less, in my view, he's more or less uh, concluded the case. And, and what is the case? The case that the Democrat, Democrats wanted us to believe was that the uh, Russian intelligence, both arms of Russian and major Russian intelligence had hacked uh, the DNC and the DCC uh, emails or computers, I should say, their, their servers, uh, and 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 according to the Democratic Party, this was a dastardly thing. This was a horrible thing. It, it just showed that how brutal and um, uh, uh, and how wicked uh, the Russians were. And then, of course, they leapt on or they produced uh, evidence that the not not only had the Russians hacked the DNC and DCC. Um, uh, servers and computers, which, by the way, I don't think they did. Let's go. 
we we must get mm-hmm. back to that at some point in the next uh, few minutes or hour or so. But um, but but also that the Russians um, through the through the internet um, through the services of <laughs> of the internet research agency based in uh, Saint Petersburg um, had. Um, uh, malignly set about trying to influence the American electorate uh, against uh, the candidature of uh, Democratic Hillary uh, Clinton. So, um, on, so these are the two major counts that uh, the Democratic Party used in order to make the claim or to help support the claim that uh, that Trump was not only was he the preferred candidate of Russia, um, but he was more or less in bed uh, with Russia, and um, and this was um, very very serious according to the Democrats. This was very very serious uh, from the point of view of American uh, national uh, security. So let, let's briefly retrace the three major points here. One, the claim that the Russians had hacked. Um, the DNC and DCCC, DCCC um, servers. Uh, the claim, secondly, that uh, not only did the Russians set about influencing the American electorate through all kinds of um, shenanigans uh, on the internet, bull, uh, bots and trolls and deep fakes and, and all the rest of it, um, but not only did they try which I, in my view, itself is doubtful, but they were very effective at doing this. And they, they accounted for uh, the failure <laughs> of uh, Hillary Clinton to secure the uh, presidency of the United States. Um, could, could I and, pause and, you for oh, a second sorry, sorry, and ask? Oh, yes, go ahead. Uh, could I ask, uh, what were the reasons why the Democratic... With, was that for foreign policy reasons or was that an internal... Uh, motivation primarily well the, the the one thing that the the emails from the dnc whether they were hacked or whether they were leaked that's another aspect of this that we get we must get get to uh whether or not they were hacked or, the, or, or they were leaked some of those emails got out of course well many hundreds if not thousands got out and uh were published um by uh, WikiLeaks, mm-hmm. which brings uh, the whole role of Julian Assange into the picture, uh, much to um, to the delight of the Democrats who couldn't wait to uh, swipe and smear Julian Assange one more time. Mm-hmm. Poor guy is now languishing, of course, uh, still uh, in jail, in, uh, in prison in Great Britain, mm-hmm. awaiting justice, which he will never receive. Mm-hmm. And... Um, what these emails showed, and this we we know this is real because it led to the resignation within days of the uh, chairwoman of the of the DNC. Uh, they they revealed that uh, rather than being an impartial administrator um, of Democratic Party interests as between the two major candidates for um, nomination for the Democratic. Uh, candidate uh, between uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Saunders, that the DNC uh, had uh, intervened uh, to to, to make sure that uh, Hillary Clinton would win the nomination. At the end of, uh, we're talking about um, 
July 2016, at the end of July 2016, at the time of the Democratic Party uh, convention. Um, and um, not only that, but also that uh, Hillary Clinton, in her in speeches for which she was paid enormous amounts of money, of course, in speeches to Wall Street uh, and the big corporations, were, were saying things much closer to their interests and to what what they wanted to hear from her than uh, she was actually uh, telling the American uh, electorate. So the, there were these two immensely embarrassing revelations as a result of the publication of these emails. And this was just within a couple of weeks or so of the uh, of the Democratic uh, Party uh, convention, which was uh, which did indeed nominate uh, mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton. The the the, the, the most convincing narrative, and this is the narrative that Sakwa um, himself supports. These are all revelations that were not available, unfortunately, at the time that I wrote my book. Um, uh, a year or so earlier, but uh, Clinton or Clinton and her advisors came up with this fantastic story um, about how the uh, Russians had hacked uh, their emails <laughs> and, and, and had sent them to Julian Assange um, through um, DC leaks and uh, one other site that was said to be uh, cutouts the expression they use, cutouts for uh, for Russian intelligence. And um, the, the, the mainstream press, which you would think would be more intelligent, and, and they actually are intelligent, they know precisely what it is that they are doing, I believe. Uh, but the mainstream press uh, allowed itself um, to be totally distracted by the mm -hmm. Russian narrative and to totally forget that uh, Hillary Clinton, in essence, or rather the DNC on her behalf, was was um, had done exactly the same thing. What was uh, was fraudulent? Yes. Mm. So, 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 could, so, I, could, so, I, so I, could I ask a question go, then? Uh, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Could I could I take a step back? So you you mentioned that you don't think that Russia actually did this, you, you, or, or or at least if they did it, you, it, it sounds as though you don't think what happened was effective. Okay. So there are. Let's go. Let's. I think we need to kind of. Um, keep as separate entities for the moment. Uh, one is the, the, the whole hacking narrative. Mm -hmm. That is separate from Russia interfered in the election uh, through the internet. That, that's a separate cluster mm -hmm. of issues there. But if we just look at the, 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 the alleged uh, Russian hacking, there are a number of problems with that main story. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the problem that I looked at when I wrote my book on Russiagate and propaganda uh, was uh, the, the conclusion that a body called the Veterans, uh, in, um, I beg your pardon, VIPs, uh, Veterans um, for, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the exact term. That's fine. The, 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 ac the acronym is FIPS, and it's something about uh, uh, vet intelligence veterans for... Um, I can uh, flash that up on screen. Yeah, it's no yes, worry. please. Thank you so much. VIPS. And the, the, one of the... the these, uh, this little group um, of intelligence veterans includes some incredibly experienced people, and one of them is uh, Ray McGovern, um, who, uh, who was a former 
CIA um, employee, and he was in charge of the um, of the Moscow uh, desk. So he's a he's a Russian expert. Uh, amongst, amongst other things. Uh, there's also William Binney, um, who had a very, very senior role uh, in, um, in, in, uh, in, in the NSA um, uh, uh, until uh, a decade or so ago. And uh, there are other equally um, eminent uh, intelligence uh, veterans who are part of this particular group. They, uh, if you, if you like, they ran tests on the basis of the claims that the uh, that were emanating from the from the Democratic Party or from CrowdStrike, which was employed by the Democratic Party to investigate the so-called Russian hack. And the conclusion that they came to was that the the speed of the download was far too fast. The speed with which these files uh, were, were were transmitted elsewhere. Uh, was far too fast, um, and that uh, the only credible way uh, in which um, this process occurred was through through a leak. Mm -hmm. uh, someone, some internal person, um, using um, um, uh, uh, flash drives or, or the or the equivalent. I'm I'm talking in very much in layman's language. Um, mm -hmm. Which, which VIPS does not do, but this is the sense that I make of it. And um, their conclusion was that it was a leak. And uh, th th this conclusion was also uh, supported by two surprisingly, well, well one perhaps not quite so, 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 so surprising. So Julian Assange totally rubbished the idea uh, that he had received anything um, from DC leaks or from uh, the or, or, or directly from from Russian uh, intelligence. Julian Assange also seemed to take a particular interest in the. Um, uh, we need to be careful here because it, the, 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 this is litigated passionately by the man's family. But there was a um, uh, there was a, a young, a fairly young uh, employee at um, working for the DNC who in this shortly after this period uh, was murdered uh, and um, in Washington DC I believe uh, nothing was stolen and um, it's difficult to work out what exactly it is that um, the FBI or law enforcement generally actually what action did they take uh, what, what depth of investigation did they take in this rather upsetting crime um, but uh, Julian Assange took a particular interest, uh, he seemed to take a particular interest in this event because uh, he offered a, a reward for, for information um, uh, about, about this murder. So, so Julian Assange totally denies that it was a hack, or at least in any way he denies that uh, he benefited in any way uh, from any such hack, uh, indicating therefore that uh, as far as he's concerned, he got uh, these files uh, from other sources. Mm -hmm. There's another gentleman um, who's which also... which could have been downloaded locally. Exactly, exactly, uh, and and taken physically in some in some way uh, mm -hmm. to uh, to Julian Assange. Now, th there's another. There's a very, uh, to my mind, very strange claim, but by a gentleman who is very much in the public eye. Uh, and I do talk about this in my book, and his name is uh, Craig Murray. And uh, mm -hmm. Craig Murray uh, was a 
uh, former British uh, diplomat working in uh, Central Asia, one of the Central Asian republics. Uh, he resigned uh, in protest against uh, the British government's uh, continuing positive relations with a regime that Craig Murray deemed to um, not, not merely to be dictatorial, uh, but to be engaged in the most horrific uh, murders and torture um, of people who were suspected of supporting uh, radical Islamist movements. So, so uh, Craig Murray is in the news again, just re well, he's, he's constantly in the news because he's an avid blogger. But the main thing I want to bring to your attention now is that uh, not long after these events, uh, back in 2016, Craig Murray said that he himself knew the person who uh, was responsible for physically transferring the files. Uh, from the uh, fr from whatever device the files were leaked onto, but gave no further information and brought them to no brought them to Julian Assange. So th that seemed, that that claim uh, I've never I, I I don't know whether Craig Murray has addressed this issue recently, but he has made that claim in the past. He hasn't repudiated that claim, and it does seem to me a very odd claim to make. Um, if you if you're simply making it up, um, so, if, so is, yes. is the link you're trying to draw that this murdered gentleman uh, may have been this individual uh, who had done the transfer? No, I, I think we should we should, we 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 need we shouldn't go down there. We we should we should note it in passing. Uh, we should note that the uh, the man's um, family has litigated uh, the, the kind of suggestions that have been made uh, and um, that, it, that there's no need for us uh, to, to try to unpack it because we can't. We don't have the evidence. We don't, we don't have the information. But we, what we do know is that there are a number of people for different reasons. The most important of these reasons, however, are scientific reasons, are empirical reasons, the reasons that VIPS has come up with, um, which are published and which are, have been uh, critiqued by reputable um, cyber security experts and found to be credible and found to be likely true. The VIPS claim that there wasn't a hack, it was a leak. So the, that's one side of it that I was able to at least to address in my book on Russiagate and propaganda, which actually came out. I, um, I'm thinking um, it's the uh, date of publication is two, uh, 2020, although it actually did appear in 2019. So it's already to some extent um, not wrong, mm -hmm. but out of date. The, the, I, I could have gotten much better evidence had I published it, say, this year. And that's what Sakwa has done, by the way, when his book does appear. Please do look out for it. Now, the other major aspect here is the role of CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike is a, a, suppo a supposedly private uh, cybersecurity company that was employed by the Democratic Party, or so, sorry, by the DNC, to investigate the, uh, the, the alleged hack. Um, of uh, spring and summer 2016. And uh, the, the, the single most important thing to know about CrowdStrike, CrowdStrike is it, it is CrowdStrike that made the claim uh, towards the end of, uh, I 
Well, it, is, it doesn't matter. In this conversation, it doesn't matter too much, the precise details. I'm trying to recall when it when exactly CrowdStrike made its claim. But um, it, it's, it's, it's before the... Um, it's before the uh, Democratic Party convention at uh, the end of July 2016, uh, several weeks uh, in, in advance of that. And they make the claim that, um, that it's, it's Russian. It, it's, it's, it's got all the hallmarks. It's got all the fingerprints um, of, the, of the GIU, mm-hmm. which is the military, uh, Russian military intelligence. And um, so, how, how can they show that? What What are the signs that would indicate that it's Russian intelligence as opposed to yeah. someone domestic well, or someone else? Uh, <laughs> I think we can safely say that uh, the, the the signs are all the signs that the hacker, or or rather the alleged uh, hacker, uh, uh, if he if 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 this hacker has got any competence at all. All the signs are the signs that the hacker wanted the investigators to find. Mm-hmm. Absurd Russian fingerprints, you know, such as the the name of the of the founding uh, father of um, of uh, Soviet intelligence, and uh, just other uh, unbelievable nonsense um, of, but this, of this also happens in other cases so for example when uh, r- these po- poisonings uh, of Russian spies this sort of thing uh, often uh, are done in ways that could only be traced back to Russia right so you could raise the argument that this is not unusual behavior I- is that the case or um, <laughs> okay I, I'd like I do we do need to talk about Russian poisonings um, but, but Sorry, just, this is a bit out of left field. No, no, but, no, uh, no. This is fine. But let's just stick with the hacking just for, just for a moment longer, uh, sure. because <laughs> the, the the important thing about CrowdStrike, we 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 found out when CrowdStrike was actually forced to resent its evidence or to talk in public to anyone beyond the DNC uh, through uh, congressional investigation um, committees, of which there were many. CrowdStrike, uh, as Ray McGovern, uh, who writes about these issues quite regularly, and I recommend that you look up some of his recent emails, um, uh, CrowdStrike had the, uh, the, 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 um, the, the founder and CEO of CrowdStrike had to confess, well, no, we, we didn't actually, we don't actually have any hard evidence. We don't have any hard evidence. And that is still the position. Of, of CrowdStrike. Furthermore, CrowdStrike never actually produced its final report on its investigation. Uh, why? Uh, or, or rather, it never produced its final report for the FBI. Um, and uh, the FBI forgot to ask for it. There's a very curious book where I meant I intended to have it in front of me and I can I can probably go get it actually in a second again I can bring that up on the screen uh, okay no um, but I'm forgetting the title of it so let me just um, yes I, I've yeah load here here's the title of it I, I, I need to be careful here because this is a self-published book by a gentleman about which I know and can find nothing of any substance but his book is amazing I, in my opinion, and it's called Loading Guccifer 2. Okay. I gather that he's a Brit. 
He seems to know a great deal about hacking and um, uh, cyber security issues. And he goes into considerable detail about CrowdStrike. The implication is that the entire thing um, is a hoax that's cooked up. And I'm, I'm saying, imp I, I underline the word implication. I'm not making a claim to fact here. I'm, and, and in fact, I, I need to be a little bit more nuanced even and say, this is an implication that's based on my inference of what I have read in other places, but I've been particularly impressed by the account that is offered by David Blake in this book, uh, Loading Guccifer 2. Guccifer 2, by the way, was one of these, um, along with DC leaks, was one of these uh, supposed Russian intelligence cutouts that supposedly, allegedly received um, the emails from, 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 from the DNC. And um, so it, it turns out that CrowdStrike uh, rather not, not wasn't, it was a private company and still is, by the way, it's a very active, it remains a very active company. Uh, it is, and, and it's privately owned, but it had already done quite a lot of work for the FBI. Mm -hmm. uh, because one has to ask, and many people have asked, well, why didn't the FBI do its investigation, direct investigation? Why did the FBI rely on a, a relatively small private cybersecurity company? Why did the FBI in its own investigations of Russiagate, which uh, started in the middle of 2016, by the way, um, why did the FBI rely on a small, on the findings of a small private cybersecurity company and never, so far as anyone can tell, never directly investigated the DNC servers? So the, the FBI appears to have taken hook, line and sinker the narrative that CrowdStrike had to tell them. Also, by the way, apparently the Mueller report did the same. Um, so that was what I was about to ask you. So, so, so the the uh, the result of the Mueller report was the finding that, uh, in fact, there was uh, some sort of uh, well that Russia had indeed uh, been interfering. There was a link found. Yeah. Yes. Mueller had all kinds of assertive uh, conclusions that had nothing to do with the with the with the original reason why Mueller was 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 set up. Mueller was uh, set up to, you know, to to find out what was there direct collaboration um, between Russia and uh, and uh, the Trump uh, campaign, and uh, he is forced to conclude well. Uh, well, actually, he doesn't even like the word collusion because <laughs> there are legal problems with the word collusion. Uh, but uh, was there coordination? Was there collaboration? Was there some kind of partnership? And uh, ultimately, uh, on most counts, uh, he concludes, well, uh, not, I can't really find the, the evidence, really. Uh, but yes, I mean, there was this organization, Internet Research Agency in uh, St. Petersburg, that looks like it did all kinds of dreadful things. And, and Mueller... Um, uh, in, indicts uh, a, a number of Russians, and uh, he doesn't indict anyone um, uh, who's who's actually uh, an American citizen, other than um, one or two poor, unfortunate people who get indicted for crimes that had little or absolutely nothing to do with Russiagate. Uh, Mueller behaves as though he knew he had to find something 
and accuse somebody of something, um, even though whatever that something is or whatever that somebody is, it doesn't really essentially deal with the very essence of the of, of the um, of of the charge that there was a, a direct partnership between the Trump uh, campaign and uh, and 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 Russia. Uh, it's um, uh, so l- let me just quickly try to go back and then leave. So we go back to CrowdStrike. To say the least, there is something Im- incredibly odd about this company and about its role as the apparently the uh, <coughs> the golden source of 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 of, um, of information um, that the Russian intelligence hacked the DNC. Uh, emails and um, the, the, and and CrowdStrike itself admits, well, nah, we don't actually have the hard evidence. And as as David Blake says, it's incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to prove hacking. Mm-hmm. Um, everything that the investigators of a hacking claim find is what the hacker left deliberately and intentionally to be found. And once you accept that, and, and, and also once you accept the findings of the Snowden revelation some years before, that uh, US intelligence um, has the means to plant, uh, has the means of false flag hacks, that is to say, can easily uh, create a situation where you attribute, you investigate a hack and you, in, you attribute that hack to a certain uh, source. And that attribution is itself a falsification, is itself a fabrication. So we, we, from Snowden, we, we knew that uh, the, the possibility of actually proving that someone, some specific individual, let alone a country, some specific because the the presumption always is oh well the ha- the hacker he's got some he's got some Syriac uh, symbols here or or the hacker does or says something that suggests Russia that the assumption always oh therefore he's close to Putin <laughs> or, he, or he works for the GRU uh, but but no one really knows this for sure. So so one thing that I want to get a handle on is let's imagine for the for the time being that there this really did happen, that there really was some foreign... Let's imagine this is a a scenario that was real. I want to understand what quantitatively, what impact that could have had on the election. So even in in the case where this did unfold, would the impact have been enough to sway an election? Would it have been enough uh, to to fit uh, the the objective of the narrative? Uh, or, Or is it... Yeah, I, I, I guess that's a pretty clear question. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Um, ex- excuse me. Um, uh, because, of course, this is speculative, uh, uh, one, one can't assert anything too strongly. If uh, the American electorate uh, had never discovered that uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, that, that, that her ascent, ascension to the president, to being the Democratic Party presidential candidate, if the American electorate had discovered that, well, the, the DNC appears to have cooked the books to make it more likely that Hillary Clinton 
and not Bernie Saunders would be the candidate. Might that have changed things? And um, I, I, my, my, my feeling is it, it could have done mm-hmm. because um, there are some indications that many, and I, I say many, but I, I, I've got no idea what the proportion is, but there was certainly a subset of, the, of, the, of, of Trump supporters who, when Bernie Saunders was still alive, possible, likely candidate, would have supported Bernie Saunders. They were looking for change. They were looking for real change that seemed uh, to be seriously interested in the welfare of the average working man and woman. Uh, Bernie Saunders offered that, and they were interested in that offer. But now they learn, oh, what it looks like the DNC have decided they're going to push Whatever happens, uh, we we get we end up with Hillary Clinton, uh, and this subset of uh, Trump supporters, um, this subset of uh, Trump supporters, of course, deeply disappointed, may therefore have switched their allegiance not to Hillary Clinton from Bernie Saunders, but to Donald Trump, um, who at the very least was saying some very uh, anti-establishment things. Of course, it, because it's speculative, it's very difficult to... to it, one has to be very careful about being overly assertive about this kind of thing. But I, I think there was a chance. I, I think there was a chance that had the, uh, um, had the American electorate uh, disca- um, uh, um, let me... Let me <clears throat> I need to sort of slightly rephrase the way that I'm telling this, uh, th- th- this narrative. So uh, the... the the so-called hack, the hacked emails, uh, seemed to show, and this was supported by the fact that the chairwoman of the uh, DNC resigned within days of this revelation, they seemed to show that uh, the DNC was acting not uh, uh, neutrally between the two candidates for the, uh, for the, Democrat, for the presidential candidacy uh, for the Democratic Party, but was actually favoring Hillary Clinton. And... Um, uh, had that never been discovered, then um, it may be that the American electorate would would have continued to believe, if they believed it at all, that uh, Hillary Clinton was uh, was indeed um, the the choice of Democratic uh, voters across the United States, and therefore one needs to respect that and and, and to vote for her. Uh, the fact that. Um, they discovered that actually Hillary Clinton was uh, perhaps a bit of a crook, uh, <laughs> or, or the DNC was a, uh, was acting uh, in a crooked way. Um, that might have led some potential Democratic voters to say, "To hell with this! We're not supporting the DNC anymore. We w- will s- uh, switch our allegiance uh, to this guy." Donald Trump, because Donald, at least Donald Trump is saying stuff that's anti-establishment. At least Donald Trump is saying stuff that kind of appeals to the gut instincts of, of the average American uh, working man and working woman. Uh, just as Bernie Saunders had spoken to their interests, although in a much more intelligent and logical way, uh, Trump did so in a totally irrational, and as far as I'm concerned, a totally unbelievable way. But uh, less informed voters might have decided, Trump, we can't have Bernie Saunders. Okay, well, we'll go to the other extreme. 
any anything other than this dreadful possibility of a return of the of orthodox um, uh, establishment, liberal East Coast establishment, um, continuation of the same um, possibility. That's what they they were. So yeah, I so yeah, it, it could have made a difference. I'm much less inclined to believe that um, supposed, uh, let, let's assume that the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg was working for Vladimir Putin. Putin was there giving them orders every day, you know, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. And, um, uh, and uh, let's, let's suppose that uh, the Internet Research Agency was doing everything it possibly could uh, to persuade the American electorate uh, that, that Trump uh, that the, 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 the Trump was basically a good guy and, and Hillary Clinton uh, was evil. Um, uh, did that, did, were they in any way, would that have been, would they have been successful? Mm. Uh, and I, my, my, my conclusion to that is uh, no, they wouldn't have been. Um, A, because whatever was going on in the world of the internet, the um, number of uh, emails that you can in some in some form or another uh, trace back to the IRA uh, is an infinitesimally small percentage of the entire traffic um, on social media, on Facebook, on on uh, on, uh, on, all, on, uh, on Twitter, and all the other ones. It is an infinitesimally small uh, when you compare it to the total size of social media traffic uh, that's that's a question that i really wanted to jump in when we start talking about uh you know these uh, troll farms and bot armies uh, i i wanted to get some uh, sort of you know some understanding of how big does your bot army need to be to actually make an in impact on on yeah. social media but before we go there I, I wanted to just um finish up on this first topic with a with the question you know, what impact did this have on U.S. and Russia relations? The fact that uh, Russiagate was in the news and, and you know, the new, the new cycle was just c continuously following this, uh, this one story. The, uh, the, the, the first impact that it had on uh, Russia-U.S. relations is that uh, tr it totally undermined Trump's ca capability of doing anything on, on Russia. Uh, from day one, he was besieged uh, by a press hysteria and a Democratic Party uh, hysteria and an, and an intelligence community hysteria that was suggesting um, not only was he friendly to Russia, he was actually possibly working for the Russians. He was he was a Manchurian candidate. This this is what uh, the um, the Steele report was claiming. This was uh, this. The, these were the allegations that were being repeated ad nauseum um, throughout the first months of the Trump uh, candidacy. So uh, Trump was totally incapacitated. He couldn't do anything vis-a-vis um, -vis Russia that was in that could remotely be seen to support um, these. Well, I have no hesitation now in saying totally absurd. Uh, fantasies uh, about uh, Trump being in any form or another being a Russian uh, agent. He, he, so he had to just 
do exactly what the intelligence community wanted him to do, exactly what uh, the Democratic Party would have done uh, had they been in power. He kept making things more difficult uh, for Russia. He was sanctioning them here, there, and everywhere. He was fighting them in, uh, in Syria. Uh, he was saying more and more anti-Russian things just to get this incubus um, of false, fake allegations off his back so that he could actually start being in his in his mind a real president hmm. um so it had a very very damaging effect um from um from the point of view of both sides uh, russia just i think recoiled in horror uh when it saw what uh, what 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 was going on and um uh, I think gave up on the possibility of um, of a cordial uh, relationship with the United States uh, from 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 then on, and um, they the the, the 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 outcome has to be that um, Russia has totally lost trust uh, in the entire uh, U.S. political system, and um, in in the light also of. Uh, the aggressiveness of NATO on the borders of uh, of Russia, uh, on in the light of the, um, the 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 aftermath of the U.S. supported coup d'état in Ukraine in 2013-2014, um, all of these things I think um, now make it extremely difficult uh, to see light at the end of the tunnel. Because the, um, uh, the 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 Republican Party can't afford to be seen to be in any remote sense uh, favorable to Russia, and the Democratic Party, which is more the interestingly, is far more the mouthpiece for the intelligence community and the military-industrial complex, for want of a better term, uh, than the than the Republican Party. The Democratic Party is far more in bed with that incubus. Uh, than is the Republican Party. So uh, the, the, the Russians, quite correctly, I think, uh, have realized that um, since, since um, uh, Trump was tearing up uh, what remained uh, of our global security through um, our treaties concerning nuclear weapons, um, there was nothing for it but to uh, commit much, much more money towards uh, advancing and improving their weapons system. And they, they did that uh, to an ast astonishing degree, actually, uh, in the development of hypersonic um, nuclear missiles and warheads. Uh, that some, some experts will make the claim that in terms of sophistication, Russia is actually ahead. America is still trying desperately to, to catch up with Russia in the development of hypersonic weapons, which are these uh, uh, weapons that um, they, uh, they, they, they move around. They don't have a single mm -hmm. linear trajectory. They, they move around. It's very, very difficult uh, to, to knock these things out. And therefore, they're far more dangerous than previous generations of, uh, of, of, of uh, nuclear uh, weaponry. So, and yes. this was this came out as a development because Russia felt that it had to spend more on its yes. uh, defense. Yes, 
But yeah. uh, I, let me jump on something that you mentioned because I, I, I'm not quite sure I followed it. So you, you said that this uh, revolution in, if I'm understanding correctly, in Ukraine, are you suggesting that that was uh, somehow orchestrated uh, on the U.S. end? Or did I mishear no, no, what no. you were saying? Uh, no. So now we get into uh, when you first, I don't know to what extent, uh, Shane, or your listeners uh, uh, <clears throat> Have followed uh, the, uh, this trajectory of um, the, these what we call the regime change narratives. is is a bit of a shock when you when you first hit it, but then you realise well actually that's what nations have been doing you know since the beginning of time or at least since the beginning of nations they've been trying to influence uh, the political developments in um, uh, in other countries that, that matter to them, whether as potential enemies or as potential friends. If if you live, if if you control uh, the territory that's next door to mine, uh, and I see that uh, who, whatever political group uh, is on the ascendant, and that political group doesn't like me or doesn't like my nation, I'm going to do my damnedest to influence your political process to make sure that it doesn't happen. This has been going, this is, this is the, this is the game of international relations since the beginning, as I say, since the beginning of nations. Uh, so there's nothing terribly surprising about regime change other than the discovery that it plays a very, very big part in modern, uh, in, in modern politics. Uh, it was part of the, uh, relationship between the United States and the first post-Soviet um, leader in Russia, Boris Yeltsin, in the 1990s. So um, Yeltsin reached out most inadvisably uh, to American financiers uh, to help him make this, uh, to complete the transition that uh, Gorbachev had already started uh, from, um, from a planned economy or a control economy as economists called it, uh, to a capitalist economy. Gorbachev, foolishly, I mean, many things admirable about uh, Gorbachev, but I think the word foolish is, is the best word. Gorbachev foolishly believed this could be done this could be effected in 100 days. Well, that was total rubbish. And uh, so the transition to capitalism um, had hardly begun, uh, even under Yeltsin. But uh, Americans made sure that uh, Yeltsin uh, uh, w would um, develop Russia according to an, a, a, a model of, America, of, of capitalism that would suit American interests best. Uh, and... Uh, uh, there, there's little, there's no doubt that the, uh, the, the that the United States played a very heavy hand to secure the re-election uh, of uh, Boris Yeltsin. I don't remember which year it is. I think we're talking about uh, uh, the mid 1990s because Yeltsin comes to the end of his uh, era in 1999, which is when uh, Vladimir Putin uh, takes uh, takes over. Now, so this this. Um, this should, could, could I ask, uh, when you say they played a heavy hand in that election, by what oh, means? Oh, it's, 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 uh, we're getting a very good handle uh, on, on this, but it's, it's principally through pouring money into uh, dissident organizations or into political groups um, that will support whatever it is that you want. Um, uh, and you devote whatever expertise in electioneering, electioneering shenanigans 
that you that you have learned from your own system, you export those um, to the country that you're trying to influence, and you pour huge amounts of money into this effort. Um, in, in in effect, buying votes, but of course, you're also uh, at the same time you are trying to influence people ideologically. And this is done through organizations like the NED, which is the uh, National Endowment for Democracy, which is plays a central role in regime change uh, operations. That are, the, the NED, by the way, as is well recognized, is, is simply took off where the CIA left off. A large part of the work that the CIA used to do back in the uh, peak Cold War years was, was I won't say privatized, but it, because it, well, not, to some extent it is privatized, but it was also sloughed off to new uh, state uh, organizations like the NED, uh, whose purpose is to achieve US foreign policy objectives overseas and where necessary, and it usually is necessary, to do so uh, using means that are non-transparent, to put it at its most uh, polite. So, you, so, so does yeah. this does this sort of in, uh, playing around have echoes in the longevity of Putin's uh, presidency at all? I mean, is, is there some influence there that has has led to what we currently see politically? Well, I, I think Bar- Bar- Boris Yeltsin uh, was a tragic. Uh, joke uh, for the uh, post-Soviet Russia. Um, uh, uh, I'm I'm trying to keep to uh, figures that are credible. Millions of people in in this period lost their livelihoods. uh, They lost their homes. Millions of people died before their times uh, in the 1990s. Uh, Post-Soviet Russia was a basket case under a man who couldn't hold his drink, um, Boris Yeltsin, and, um, and, and who is also a plaything uh, for, uh, for Western interests and, and Western uh, pressure groups and Western uh, f- uh, financial um, activities or influences. And um, Lenin um, is more, I think, um, the model for Vladimir Putin, named in the sense that he's an ideologue. He actually believes in the possibility of a of a sovereign Russian state that is strong, that exerts worldwide influence, that acts judiciously and wisely, that applies rational rationality to the problems that it that it sees and it confronts, and also tries to achieve a balance of power uh, between the very wealthy, the so-called oligarchs, uh, and uh, other aspects of the political political system. Unlike in the United States, where the oligarchs have free reign pretty much to do what they want. Um, and, and the oligarchs are free to kind of buy the political system that they want. Uh, like the Koch brothers, for example, and uh, their evil influence on uh, denying uh, climate change. I'm talking about the United States now. So the the thing about Putin is he's actually managed to control the oligarch class. He's shown that he's not going to put up with this nonsense, these guys who think they can buy the political system. Um, And if if, if he has to, he'll put them in jail and he'll, he'll let them rot in jail. Um, I guess what I was trying to get at was, you know, let's say, for example, that America or Western powers had interfered uh, in Russian elections. 
that's like, um, you know, I, I'm wondering if that would have produced a defense mechanism against, well, the result of which is someone who can stay in power for three or four uh uh, election cycles. Yeah, I, actually, no, I, I actually, I don't think so. I, I think um, if we're trying to explain the the durability of Vladimir Putin, I, I don't think it has much to do with a, a kind of popular reaction, if you will, or even um, an elite uh, reaction uh, to the possibility of uh, U.S. Inter- There's no doubt that the U.S. The United States is constantly trying to interfere. Uh, in, in in Russia, because the U.S. and NATO elites, I, I think many of them firmly believe that uh, Russia is weak, and definitely it, it does have some very worrying weaknesses. There's no doubt about that. That 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 Russia is weak, uh, and that given enough pressure, it will eventually just fold in on itself. That's very much the NATO hope, uh, and a, a lot a lot of the what we see along the Russian border, whether it's in the Ukraine or whether it's through these massive uh, NATO exercises that regularly take place in the most sensitive areas <laughs> of Russian national interest, whether it's the Black Sea or near Crimea or along the border with Ukraine or whatever. Um, th- these are all, th- I, in, my, in my humble reading, these are all humble provocations, very, very dangerous, I- incredibly dangerous provocations. Uh, but they are they they are theatrical. They're not intended to lead to war. They very could possibly could lead to war by accident. That's my worry. Um, but they're not actually intended to lead to war. They're intended to put increasing pressure uh, on what Russia sees to be this uh, rather weak um, political um, uh, regime. And and and, and the West uh, will read the results of his own activity. Uh, and be overly influenced by it. So many asp- many elements of the intelligentsia in uh, in Moscow and in uh, Saint Petersburg um, uh, they, they, they like the idea of being modern. They like the idea of being global. They like the idea of being seen to be people you can talk to. Um, they they are quite ex- they're still um, totally misled by the real nature. Uh, of U.S. capitalism, uh, and and still um, uh, yearn uh, for the, for for a similar kind of um, uh, a similar kind of uh, framework uh, for for Russia. But you know, it, it doesn't matter how many of them there are. They're still a very small fraction of the entire 150 million Russians. Um, uh, most of whom are fiercely nationalist. They're fiercely uh, religious. Uh, many, a good many of them, uh, in favour of the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, they're steeped in traditions that are not so much anti-Western, but simply non-Western. And they have a language with the West finds um, uh, uh, most Westerners find all, uh, barely penetrable, penetrable, even with the, the the most assiduous attempt to learn it. Um, in other words, the intelligentsia, the, the upper middle class, it doesn't matter what they think, because politically, whatever their preferences are, they count for zilch. And Vladimir Putin stands for a much broader group. 
um, of, of Russians um, than the intelligentsia. And, but so it's, it, it, in that particular respect, NATO, I think, and the United States is totally deluded, totally deluded in this fantasy that we put enough pressure, we make things difficult enough, if, we, if the NED is in there pumping money in this group or this other group, or we're trying to ferment discord in this or that part of the, the former Soviet Union, uh, eventually we're going to win this game. And then what? Well, then I suppose uh, US uh, corporations can just walk into Russia and do what they want, get what they want, uh, control, uh, just behave as though they were in their own uh, backyard. Um, but they won't, of course, because uh, China will still be there, e even if this fantasy came about. In the meantime, the United States and NATO has created a far more, a far greater obstacle than it ever had in the past, namely a more and more solid relationship uh, between Russia and China. They both realize that the United States now, is, you, you cannot, there's no scenario in which it would make sense for Russian or Chinese leaders to trust anything that the United States has to say on the international stage. It, the, the reason why I was curious, moving back a little bit, the reason why I was curious uh, for you to mention that there was American meddling in the Ukrainian, in the revolution there in the Ukraine, um, was because the image that I had, and this might be a completely incorrect image, was that there was a revolution that occurred and Russia took advantage of this distraction to move their little green men into Crimea. And so I had this picture of Russia being the aggressor. Is, is this... Is this a useful well, image in well, your view? Well, or? yes, this is, this is how propaganda works. Uh, so an intelligent guy like you uh, and, uh, of course, you're in very, very good company uh, because uh, where else are you going to go? You're, you're taking your uh, you're basing your, your worldview on, on what uh, in, what you quite fairly regard as intelligent uh, mainstream media like The New York Times, perhaps, or The London Guardian um, or El Pais or uh, any, any of these newspapers. And you think, no, okay, these are sensible guys. They, they, they've got their finger on what's going on, and, and um, you know, they, they obviously regard uh, Russia as the aggressor in, in, in Ukraine. But th th this is th this is how propaganda works. Uh, we so we I can spend a little bit of time now t um, sharing with you my interpretation, and this is, I have written about this in my book, Western Mainstream Media and the. U this was your 2017 book? Yes. I, 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 no, it's, it's called Western um, Mainstream Media and the Ukraine Crisis. And I think you're right. I think it's 2017. Uh, and uh, so f f first off, Yanukovych, who is the um, president of Ukraine, he's, he's the guy who is he's the loser in this coup. He is a duly elected leader of Ukraine. He is the result of the operation of democracy in the Ukraine. You and I might not like that. We might think he's a terrible fellow. How dare the Ukrainians elect him? But they did. <laughs> they, had, they could have elected someone else, but no, they elected Yanukovych, the, the so-called pro-Russian um, president uh, of Ukraine. And then... Um, uh, about a year before uh, Yanukovych was due to, for the, 
due to stand in, in, in the next election. So it's a democratic system. Uh, leaders come and go. You don't like this leader. Okay, you wait for the next election and then you, you, you toss him out. That's, that's, that's how we're supposed to do it in, in the West. Um, uh, but no, um, we have some riots uh, in Kiev. The uh, the riots seem to have some very charming young people in them. Uh, they have some very reassuringly middle class uh, people in them. What are they upset about? It appears that they don't like the fact um, that uh, Yanukovych, having been quite enthusiastic for quite some time about the possibility uh, of uh, moving closer to the European Union and to NATO. Uh, quite suddenly, it seems, uh, toward, at, the, at the last moment, uh, he changes his mind and he decides that the Russian, the Russians have actually offered him a better deal, which is true, by the way. The Russians offered him a far better deal that had very few strings attached <laughs> uh, because the, the, the whole European thing uh, had a lot of strings attached. Could you give some examples? This is this is to do with um, uh, production of food and this sort of thing, uh, right? I, I don't remember the story. It's too many no, years I know, ago. I know. But, but the, the main, I think actually, uh, Shane, the main thing to bear in mind is, okay, so you have a few thousand people uh, uh, protesting uh, Yanukovych. Amidst those few thousand people, you have some very right-wing organizations. They're, they're actually Nazis. They are Nazi organizations, and they appear to be taking control of the situation. They are exploiting popular unrest to further their own uh, political goals and um, through the use of force. Uh, both sides use force. Uh, so it's a very messy and it's a very bloody uh, process. But what you have to bear in mind is it's just a few thousand people I don't care whether it's 10,000 or 20,000 or 30,000. It is not the entire population of Ukraine, which are many, many millions. They are not in Kiev. And many of them live in the pro, what are called, not, uh, they are called pro-Russian because um, the, 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 sec, the, um, the parts of the Ukraine, uh, it, uh, half of the country essentially is close, physically close to Russia. It, it is Russian speaking. Uh, uh, its culture is far more Russian uh, than, uh, than uh, Ukrainian. They're certainly not protesting. And in the West, in the rest of Ukraine, you, you've got a bit of a mixture. And um, so th this is not a democratic process. It is a coup d'etat. Through force, Yanukovych is forced to flee Ukraine, and his party uh, is totally disregarded by the incoming coup regime. It is not allowed to field candidates, um, the party mm -hmm. of the regions. Uh, the, in Crimea, which is uh, far more Russophile than any other part of the Ukraine, not least because of the presence in Crimea of Sebastopol, which is the Russian, one of the most important um, uh, Russian naval ports. 
uh, it has a total legitimate right to Sebastopol. It has a totally legitimate right to station 25,000 Russian troops in Crimea as a result of an internationally brokered treaty from a, a, a one decade or two decades, from, from, from the time mm -hmm. of the transition um, from the Soviet Union uh, to Russia. Russia doesn't need to invade Crimea because it's already got 25,000 troops in Crimea. Mm -hmm. But does Russia simply annex Crimea? Uh, because after all, you've got a very pro-Russian uh, population. Th there are some anti-Russian populations as well in Crimea. I don't want to um, simplify this narrative. You've got the, the, the Tatar uh, uh, mm -hmm. population, um, which are um, Muslim. Heavily anti-Russian. Very anti-Russian for historical reasons, but they are way not the majority. The majority is Russo Russophile, and uh, but but Russia doesn't just annex uh, Crimea. They uh, the uh, the existing uh, parliament in um, uh, uh, regional parliament um, uh, uh, votes to find out uh, whether the Crimean politicians uh, want to be part of the new Ukraine, the new government of, 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 of in Kiev, which is saying things like, let's abolish the Russian language. Let's make it not possible for people to speak Russia, Russian anymore uh, in, in, in public. Let, let's, in other words, let's do everything we possibly can to really annoy anyone who is mildly pro-Russian. Well, you know, the pro-Russian uh, Crimeans are not going to sit idly by and just accept, just roll over. Because they've always, they resolutely, time after time after time in recent history, they have expressed their preference for Russia. They've never wanted to be part of the Ukraine. We can get into that story, but it was not the, the will of the Crimean people ever to be part of Ukraine. That was foisted on them um, in, through a succession of rather unfortunate uh, circumstances. And now they're saying, oh my God, we, th this is it. We've had enough. This is an anti-Russian uh, coup uh, in uh, Kiev that does not represent our interests. Let us hold a um, uh, let, let, let us hold a referendum to see um, whether the people will support a formal request to uh, Russia for Russia to annex us. And that's exactly what happens. There is a there's a referendum. The pro-Russians. Um, uh, easily win that election uh, in uh, very credible opinion polls that have, been, that have taken that took place then and have taken place on a regular basis since then. The Crimean people as a whole have firmly endorsed that decision to leave Ukraine and to be part of Russia. That's the Crimean story. The, yeah, and the and the the presence of the little green men well, who arrived yeah. prior to the well they well they were already there, <laughs> and, and of course let us not overlook the deeply is it what what do we call it do we call it racist what do we call it this expression little green men it, it's 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 pathetic isn't it it's a denigration um, of someone else's nation and and their troops and their right to national security their right to feel secure. 
That's the, that's what that little expre that expression does. It's a propaganda slogan: "Little green men." Um, so uh, I don't want to use that slogan, but yes. So, so uh, well, I, I didn't mean any. Uh, no, no, insult, I know, I know, I, you, I know so you what, do. What, but that, this, this is how Russian. This is how propaganda works. It works through these slogans, which become symbols for complex ideologies, which are barely understood by the people who use them, but in order to to pursue a particular argument. Sorry, go ahead, Justin. So, so could you could you explain? Um, so, w w what are they known as uh, from the Russian side, and and who who were they? Uh, oh, they, they actually, they're they're, they're bona fide Russian forces. Uh, the, these are bona fide Russian armed forces who are already stationed in uh, Crimea because of the uh, legal uh, entitlement of Russia to Sevastopol, uh, which is one of its major naval. Uh, ports, so it's a it's a military installation, in other words, uh, and has been for um, ever since um, the beginning of the Soviet Union. I would I would I would, I would say. So no, the, the the Russians are there because they're already there, uh, and the so yeah. so, so sorry, I I keep interrupting yeah. you, but so uh, one of the aspects that I don't understand is uh, the the lack of insignia. Um, pr pr so prior oh, to the uh, election, okay. yeah. Um, I, I, all right, I think uh, at, at this point, I think I will say I, I don't have an answer for you. Uh, is it true uh, that there were people uh, without insignia? Perhaps it is. I, 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 I'm not sure, but it, it, may, it, it may be true. And then if it is true, how might I explain it? I could speculate. Uh, but uh, at this moment, I don't think I have a ready answer uh, for, for why that might have been, why, might, why that might have happened. The, so the, there's another question that I was hoping to ask you about, which is there's an issue uh, in the Crimean crisis that has always confused me. And um, it's something that's sort of stuck at the back of my mind. And it has to do with um, these uh, this convoy of aid trucks in in it will through Ukraine. So in through the Donbass region. And I'm not sure exactly where they right. ended up. But um, so the image that I got was that this was a distraction this is uh something that was done to i could be completely wrong that was there was news that these trucks were completely empty or carrying very little and and i was under the impression rightly or wrongly that um this was a distraction technique that was employed by russia to to have everyone you know looking in this direction at the trucks and not looking over here at uh what forces in in uh crimea or in the Don donbass were doing what, what's your impression of what, what happened? So, uh, please, so please bear in mind that the broader context, uh, Ukraine is a divided nation. It's a nation that's deeply divided between a Russia, Russophile uh, population, which may constitute up towards uh, 40, 45% of the entire uh, population, uh, and uh, a much more pro-Western uh, uh, population, um, uh, s some parts of which have always been very partial to uh, Nazi or semi-Nazi organizations that leads back to a very complex history um, uh, back before World War II and, uh, and during, it's a, it's a horrible history, actually. There's a very, very good documentary that uh, Oliver Stone, the um, celebrated uh, American uh, film director, Oliver Stone, did a brilliant uh, documentary that tells 
visually relates that that uh, some some of that history. So the broad context, therefore, for Eastern um, Ukraine, particularly these two republics that are now self-declared republics of. Um, uh, Donetsk and uh, Luhansk, um, very short, for the same reasons that uh, the people of Crimea voted to be annexed uh, to Russia. Uh, the peoples in, Lu in Donetsk um, and uh, Luhansk, uh, they voted to become um, uh, uh, to become uh, republics. They do, however, the the history of, of the of the Donbass is very different to the history. Uh, of Crimea. Crimea, it makes absolutely good sense to belong to Russia uh, in, in, in the light of, the, um, of, its, of its history and in the light of the, the preferences of the people who live there. But uh, this, this is not, this has never been the case in, there is, there is a certain affiliation between many people of the, uh, of the, of the Donbass and, and Russia, but they don't want to be part of Russia. Uh, they never indicated. Uh, I mean, there may be some people there who would like, who would be happier uh, under Russian control. But m m in my reading, is the majority do not. Even of the Russophiles, the majority do not. What they want, what they want, and what what the Minsk agreements, which were signed by the European Union, by Russia, by the Ukraine. Back in 2015, uh, and then there was a separate round of negotiations sometime later. What uh, what the people of the Donbass want, and what the Minsk agreements agreed to, was that Kiev needs to give greater autonomy to the different uh, regions, uh, to the different regions of uh, of Ukraine. And that uh, it needs to take the necessary steps for the necessary elections to take place in order for this process uh, to begin. Ukraine has never honored that deal. It'll, 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 Ukraine claims um, that, well, no, we can't because um, the, the border between the Donbass and Russia, it hasn't been closed off. Well, that wasn't part of the deal that the, uh, the Russian border be closed up. The deal was that when Kiev gives greater autonomy within Ukraine. Donbass is not talking about being separate from Ukraine. It's saying we want more autonomy, just like I guess the parallel might be Catalonia. Or uh, mm -hmm. where do you see that that uh, conflict going uh, in the future? Do you have an, an eye on on this still? And are, are you do you have some sort of feeling uh, as to whether this this is going to be more unity, or whether these are going to uh, remain independent. I, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not terribly good at telling the future. I'm, 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 so I'm not, I'm not going to make any claims uh, to, to great wisdom in this respect. But as I'm looking at the current situation, what you you remember that we so we got this gentleman uh, who was a, a television clown, uh, Zelensky, who's the current uh, president of. Um, the, the the coup president, uh, Poros, um, oh, what was his name? Um, begins with a P. I've lost it for the moment. Uh, the, the, he, he was the coup president, uh, or rather the guy who was uh, elected president uh, in the first presidential elections following the coup, uh, Poroshensky. And um, uh, he, he became deeply, uh, deeply unpopular. He, he, I think he actually wanted to begin to uh, respect and to uh, 
execute the Minsk agreements, but he couldn't. Why? Because every time he 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 indicated he was going in that direction, um, th these Nazi, very powerful right-wing militarized uh, Nazi organizations that have now been enveloped into, integrated into uh, the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, they, they, they threaten um, mayhem. Uh, they don't represent the majority of the Ukrainian, but they have power and they have military power, they have force, and they have an ideology that will stop at nothing. And so um, against that kind of pressure, that kind of threat, um, most people apparently cave in. And uh, so that's why the main reason why the Minsk agreements had never taken place. And so um, the, the previous guy then uh, lost increasingly a lot. He, he was just as corrupt as all the other previous uh, presidents. Um, so if, if anything, uh, Ukrainian uh, discontent with the corruption of their own system has increased since the uh, since the coup of 2014 uh, is now more intense and more upset more disturbed today than it was even back in 2014 and um, so uh, this gentleman he, he's a comedian he's a television comedian Zelensky and um, he he had a, a show a comedy show um, about 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 a Ukrainian president <laughs> and so in in the run-up uh, to his election. This show is still going on. And in the show, he um, mouths all kinds of sentiment that many Ukrainians would listen to and, and, and would be reassured by uh, sentiments against anti-corruption, uh, sentiments against the war and this, that and the other. And uh, without ever actually having a, an explicit policy, all he's got uh, what people believe he, he stands for because of his comic, his comedy show on television. Uh, he gets into power and it turns out, of course, he, he's, nothing, he's, he's as neoliberal as they come. Uh, he's got less and less popular. He's now, uh, he, he came in with a very strong percentage of the vote and now it's, it's down to, I don't know, 20, 25%, that kind of thing. Um, and, and now, so th this clown, I, I would call him a clown because A, he is a professional clown and B, as a politician, he continues to behave like a clown. Uh, and um, so uh, Zelensky uh, has uh, badgered, um, he was badgering uh, the Trump administration uh, and NATO, oh, please, please help Ukraine, poor little old Ukraine, beat back the evil uh, Russians and the influence they are unduly exerting uh, on our poor, pathetically um, underrepresented people in uh, Donbass. Uh, total nonsense, of course. And, um, it, and and then Trump and at the beginning, the Biden administration seemed to be kind of warming up to this narrative. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's saying just the kind of things that uh, we like Ukrainian presidents to say. He's talking about how evil the Russians are, what a threat Russians are to, to national security. This is the kind of stuff that we... Um, we, we supported the 2014 coup for, but through the, the services of Victoria Newland at that time, who boasted about how um, uh, the United States had invested $5 billion, mainly through the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, to bring about re regime change 
in uh, in, in in Ukraine. So you would have thought that um, uh, these kind of uh, cries for help from Zelensky, from this deeply unpopular president, clown President Zelensky, would uh, would move uh, NATO and the United States to immediately say yes, 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 let's have a war, and let's tell you what, Zelensky, let's have a war on your territory, since that's what you seem to be suggesting. Um, and let it, yeah, it doesn't matter. They've got nukes. We've got nukes. Let's just, let it just roll, man. Well, thank God. We got, we got very, very close to the precipice just about a month ago. But since, uh, since then, um, uh, the, the, the noises, uh, have abated somewhat. And I think, uh, some cooler heads um, uh, ha have now taken control. I, I read uh, just recently, but uh, yeah, I would like to see this confirmed by the the new um, uh, Secretary of State uh, Blinken, um, Biden's Biden's man. Uh, he he made a visit um, about a month ago to to Ukraine, and uh, people worried that he was there to uh, you know to spice up. Spice up the thirst for war, the thirst for blood. Um, but now it's being said that no, actually, the real reason he went out there was to say, cool the rhetoric down, <laughs> cool it down. And there's a very good reason because any war that's going to be fought in Ukraine is going to be won by Russia. You did, I said I wasn't going to tell. I said I wasn't going to uh, forecast the future, but tell you know, the future. I, I think yeah. that's. <laughs> That's that's the conclusion of most sensible people, and um, because Russia's got all the equipment it needs, it's got geographical proximity, it's got a population um, that supports it in uh, in the Donbass, and um, it's got very advanced nuclear weapons, including hypersonic nuclear weapons that the United States only a few weeks ago only first began to test. The Russians have got it; it's all tested. They've got them. Russia will win in the in any time in the uh, foreseeable to medium term future. Russia will win that war, uh, but you know Putin is is way more astute uh, than his critics give him. Um, he he could he could invade Ukraine. Actually, he could probably take over the entirety of Ukraine without there being a truly meaningful Western response. But he doesn't do that because he's, a, he's an intelligent man and he doesn't want to create more problems than he needs or that Russia wants or that anyone actually wants. He's relatively, in that respect, humane. But, he, but whether or not he's humane, he's, he's definitely intelligent. He's definitely smarter, and I would say he's a great deal smarter uh, than um, uh, than his equivalents in both uh, uh, Russia and uh, both the United States and in most other NATO countries. So, I want to um, I want to jump back into uh, looking or well, speaking directly about uh, media propaganda. And so this all started, uh, this, this stream of conversation started when I, I wanted to ask about um, some of the techniques that are being used now. So, so speaking about Russian intelligence, um, there's this, this idea that there are these uh, bot armies and uh, troll farms. So 
the idea is that they're spreading misinformation and disinformation. So I, I wanted to ask, first of all, what, what's your in, what is the definition of misinformation as opposed to disinformation? And, and how are they used uh, by these, the, these groups, if these groups indeed exist? Well, I, I, uh, d- disinformation, uh, like propaganda, it's a... <clears throat> yes, of course, it, it, it's telling lies, isn't it? But it, it's telling lies in sophisticated ways that um, they seem as though they could... They could be true because most propaganda, and for that matter, most disinformation, uh, uh, usually contains elements of truth. In fact, the best propaganda and the best disinformation is all true because then it can't be proven to be false, but it's not the whole truth. You present facts A, B, C, and D, but you neglect to mention anything about facts E, F, G, and H. Because if your audience knew about E, F, G, and H, they would reassess and re-evaluate what it means to say A, B, C, and D. That's what the good propagandist does. Now, I'm going to quickly jump to the first part of the question that you just put me put to me, because I'm thinking this whole thing about bots and, and trolls and, uh, and and all of that and deep fakes and this, that, and the other. It's all, it's all kind of interesting. But I've, I, lately I'm coming to the conclusion it's all a distraction. Um, it, there's, there's, a, there's, a small, there's a small reason for that and then a much bigger reason. But the small reason that I say that is because, well, actually, if I look at the American media scene right now and I ask myself, well, what are, who, who are the most likely sources of disinformation that have a, such a power and such an authority that they can actually swing an election. I'm not going to look at bots and trolls, and I'm not going to look at organizations like the Internet Research Agency. And by the way, I certainly wouldn't assess the effectiveness, effectiveness um, of a disinformation campaign by selecting very selectively, one potential source of disinformation and totally disregard hundreds of others internationally. Um, also state-run organizations around the world. They would include Israel. They would include South Africa. They would include any of a hundred or more countries that have an interest in the outcome of American elections. They are all, they are all at it. And any propaganda that tries to persuade you that only the, the Russians are uniquely capable of coming up with the idea, oh, we might be able to influence people by sending out some disinformation on the internet without mentioning all of the other people who are engaged in this kind of uh, game, including Cambridge Analytica and its parent, which of course is now defunct, and its parent SCL, which knowingly interfered in the elections of over a hundred countries in favor of the foreign policy interests of the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office. So the, the, the selectivity that is going on in this conversation, not in, not in our conversation, but in this conversation about, um, uh, uh, election meddling, uh, is itself a, a deeply disturbing aspect of the entire, mm-hmm. of the entire narrative. So, but, so, so, but I wouldn't bother with the bots and I would look at things like Fox News. 
I would look at things like MSNBC. I would look at things like the New York Times or the Los Angeles Times. I would look at the stories that they're telling and what people are likely to conclude as a result of interpreting the world through the eyes of these very, very well-resourced um, media conglomerates, because all of them are component parts of much, much bigger business empires. Um, I guess this is the question I was curious about. Um, you know, I, I had, I was, well, I was wondering if these new uh, techniques for media control and and propaganda. I, I was wondering whether they allowed new actors to come into the game and whether there was yeah. some sort of democratization right. of of yeah. media propaganda. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. Or, well, originally I was thinking that maybe the if bot farms are a thing that maybe you needed to be a state or a large actor yeah. to employ a large enough army or enough trolls yeah. to influence sway public opinion but do you have a do you have a gauge um, there well, on, on yes i mean i, I this <laughs> the term democratization is a little bit disturbing in this particular context uh you know, democratization of telling lies uh but I, I i think you have a point uh you know you you've, you've got more than a point uh we are we are living in a new age and uh, we are living in an age where it's, it's demonstrably the case that most of us have access to a far far broader range of, of, of voices, of different voices than, than we had in the era before uh, social media came along. So that I think is uh, demonstrably the case. Um, do uh, non-state actors uh, make use of this? I would say absolutely yes. All the big corporations, all the Pluton, I, I need to be careful, not all, but a good many of the big corporations, a good many of, of, of plutocrats, I'm thinking of the, the again, once again, the Koch brothers, uh, the way in which they have used uh, social media and mainstream media in all kinds of ways to advance their pro-fossil fuel uh, agenda uh, in the last decade or so. Uh, but yes, are, are there some non-conservative um, uh, groups that may also be engaged? Of, of course, uh, uh, of course there are. So, uh, and I, and, and I frankly, if you want, if you're asking me, well, um, what, what, what is the respective weight that we need to give to each of these uh, segments within the, within the social media universe? I don't know. Really, I mean, we can. There are there. There, there must be uh, indicators that mathematicians will use quite rightly, or statisticians will use, uh, and then they would likely have um, you know the number of people who who view, the number of messages that are actually passed uh, by the um, by the machine of any particular viewer. What are the chances that I of all the uh, million social media messages. What are the chances that I personally, Oliver Boyd Barrett, here in California, what are the chances that I will personally will see any one of them? I think the answer is remote. There's a very remote chance, unless uh, um, those um, those messages are coming from sources that are already powerful, probably sources that are already uh, linked to the established mainstream media, the same old gang that have always controlled our information space are still there. If we're talking about international news, it's in terms of the people who actually generate original international news, it's still the same old gang. It's still Reuters. It's still Associated Press. It's still Agence France Press. It's still the BBC. It's still the CNN. There's nothing, no number of no, no number of bots uh, removes from the authority and the power that these guys wield. 
So that's my conclusion on that. Mm-hmm. But quick, Shane, I, I do want to move to a broader issue that I think is more important. Absolutely. Uh, because you, you Absolutely. basically on, on, on this issue um, of, um, well, how is propaganda done? It, 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 is it bots and trolls that we need to talk about and we're trying to understand where, where propaganda is going? I think not really. I actually don't think the me- the mechanics of propaganda have changed all that much since, um, well, since the days of Edward Bernays. And if you want to talk about Edward Bernays, let's do so uh, somewhat. So what what date oh, is, is that? Okay, so uh, uh, Edward Bernays is a very, some people regard him as the, as the granddaddy of public relations. Uh, he has actually been good enough to tell us, and it's on film, uh, he was, he's been good enough to tell us that uh, the term public relations he and some of his buddies in the early 1920s came up with the term public relations because they realized that people no longer trusted the word propaganda anymore. They'd seen what, how propaganda, they, they had seen what propaganda is and what it does during World War I, and they don't like it, and they don't want propaganda. So let's come up with something new that describes what it is that people like Edward Bernays and his mates did back then. Why don't we call it public relations? That said, but we need to come. Edward Bernays is actually very important in, in, in any conversation about propaganda and how it's done. But I don't want to talk about him right now. What I want to do, mm-hmm. what I want to invite uh, you to do and, and your listeners is, um, is a, a, an Einsteinian imaginative experiment. Let's imagine, Shane, that you and I are employed let's say by the CIA, but it could be any of the, any multiple, any of the multiple intelligence agencies, uh, we have access to, well, pretty much unlimited funds, Shane. Uh, and, and even the amount of money that they give us, that, that even that doesn't represent the real money that's there because the real money, they can produce it out of nowhere whenever they need for us. So the, the last thing we ever have to worry about, Shane, is money. And we also know that um, uh, the most important part of international relations and the management of international conflict is the management of perception. Uh, because um, that's what our predecessors uh, had discovered. That's what they had learned from their granddaddies. And that's what their granddaddies had learned from their granddaddies is all to do with the management of perception. What changes perception? Two things. One, information or misinformation. And two, the emotions that you can evoke through the manipulation mm-hmm. of information and misinformation. Which today seems to be the more important of the two. I mean, America is super divided. The West in general is, yeah. is quite divided yeah. and emotional. But, but I, I, I kind of need, forgive me, Shane, I'm gonna, I will come back to that, but I, I kind of need to uh, just finish this mm-hmm. bit of the narrative. We're doing this imaginative experiment and we're asking ourselves, so what is it that we now know after these generations are playing this game? What is it that we now know about propaganda that works? Well, uh, we know that um, it it really evokes some emotions that are going to work in our favour. Maybe these are emotions of fear. Maybe these are emotions of hate, of disgust for a disgusting enemy. Um, So that's one of the things we know. Another thing uh, that we know is uh, people are very, so easily confused 
you know, they hear something from person A and then there's this person B over here and he's saying something different. Gee, this is confusing. We can't handle this. The brain sort of freeze like the like the wood on a malfunctioning computer screen. So the one thing we know about propaganda is we need lots of people to be saying the same thing. Oh, well, what kind of people? Well, the kind of people that people trust, you know, like important politicians or uh, important politicians or respected business people or people that people who you know we admire celebrities and sports people and um, people like authority that. figures so now now we're getting a sense and this is bernays understood this very well uh, even back in the 1920s these are some of the ingredients of successful propaganda that your average person when they look out into their information universe all they see is the same thing the same message but from different people sometimes using different different information, but all the information is cohering very neatly and harmoniously together in one harmonious story. Okay, now we understand how some of the ingredients of how propaganda works. So, we have unlimited funds. We also, because we are CIA, we have unlimited influence. We can go to whoever we want. We can persuade them because we're so likable, we're so affable, um, or we can just threaten them. We can we can tell them, you know, like um, John Bolton told uh, the, the the first um, managing director of the OPCW. We know where your family are. We understand you have a son in New York. We know where he lives. They said Bolton said that. You got all the mm -hmm. tools you need bribery and threat and money. You have everything you need to create the situation that you want people or the information that you want people to hear. Do you, now, you also know, because of your study as propaganda has told you this, um, that effective propaganda can also be illustrated with reference to a real world. Um, so what happens if in the real world, there's nothing that supports the information that you want to, to sell. Oh, well, that's, we got unlimited funds. We create, we Generate. create the reality that we need so that the information that we disseminate relates back to the reality that we, that we fabricated. Now, we found most of this stuff out by accident, by trial and error, but now we know for sure how it works. So now we start with this model. We want people to really, really dislike China right now. Yeah, it'd be a really, really good idea to, to have a nuclear war with China before they buy any more nuclear weapons. Um, and uh, maybe the population can't stomach the idea of usual, normal nukes. So we'll make small nukes that seem a little bit less threatening and a little bit more. Whatever it takes, we need to defeat this competitor to U.S. interest. Uh, in uh, in Asia. Now, what are the kind of things that really get people upset? People, because most people are good. Most people want to be good. They want to be seen to be good people. And most people are upset when they see egregious injustice. 
people being, well, we could refer, of course, to uh, the murder of you know, 60 children in in Palestine, couldn't we? But we won't talk about them because that's not the propaganda message that we want uh, our Western audiences to focus on right now. Pity about the 60 kids, but uh, that's not terribly helpful. No, no. What's much, much more helpful to our case is we want people to believe um, that the Chinese, just because they're evil, in innately evil, they've gone out to one of their westernmost provinces, Xinjiang, and they've set up concentration camps, and they're just hoarding uh, the, the Uyghurs, the Uyghur people. They're just hoarding them by the thousands and, and putting them in these concentration camps and, and doing terrible things. That, uh, so it, this is not happening? Well, or? <laughs> let's put aside the question, but doesn't it make some sense to you that if, we have to presume, to start with, uh, Shane, that because you and I are pretty senior uh, members of the CIA, we're kind of amoral. <laughs> so we, we have to kind of presume our basic amorality, or at least we have entrusted our morality, mor morality to the state. We have entrusted our sense of morality to some higher power, and it sure as hell isn't God. So it's probably uh, whatever interests lie behind uh, the U.S. Uh, system of democracy. And um, we have the resources. Uh, we know that we have to have everyone speaking on the same page. And above all, we've also learned this because we learned this in Syria. The British learned it for us. It's a really good idea to have funded hundreds of different uh, humanitarian organizations that are totally dependent on our, on our funding uh, to go out and get the information that we need so that when we need to prove that humanitarian abuses have taken place by people that we don't like, the, you know, abuses by people such as, let's imagine, um, Assad, Bashar Assad in Syria. We don't like him. You, you want to tell me that there are some abuses going up under in Egypt under General Sisi, whom we leave it into power a few years ago? No, 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 no. Not talking about Sisi now. Uh, are you talking? Are we talking about Saudi Arabia? Are we talking about the guy who, um, who, who murdered a, a, a journalist in cold blood and uh, in in a, in, a, in a Saudi embassy? No, 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 no. No, we're only talking about the evil that someone evil like Bashar Assad could do. Do we have the evidence? Well, we could have the evidence if we have these humanitarian organizations who we are paying to go out into the field. If they can't find the documentation, let them make it up. If they can't find the photos, like the Caesar's photos, well, they can find the photos. It's just that it gets a little bit fuzzy when we are challenged to prove that the photos are actually the photos um, of um, dead and tortured people um, who died in uh, Bashar Assad's Syrian jail. So we've learned how to do this trick. We've learned how to pay off. Uh, I sh hundreds was an exaggeration, but dozens is getting closer to the reality. Dozens of so-called non-government organizations, which are almost totally funded by governments, and in particular, in this instance, by the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office, um, we, we paid them and we want to find victims of, uh, of chemical weapons assaults. We'll pay these guys to find the witnesses.
Um, and then they can bring their witnesses to a nice, respectable, clean uh, UN governed organization like the OPCW, and the entire world will just lick it all up. Escaped Sapiens. <laughs> <laughs>